Okay, today's scripture passage comes from Genesis 17, 1 through 13. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Thank you. I thought that this first time that we baptized in some time, we would talk about baptism. Some of you know a bit of my story. A lot of you know a lot of my stories, I suppose. I was ordained as a pastor of a little Baptist church uh, when I was 23 years old. And so I've been a senior pastor, church planter in a Baptist church for over 20 years. So how does this lifelong Baptist come to be a Presbyterian who in a moment will baptize babies? It's quite a move. And so I thought maybe I'd share a little bit of my story. The short answer is I changed my mind. And I probably could go just uh, leave it at that. But, you know, a preacher can't ever leave it at that. Uh, So, uh, but I changed my mind primarily about baptism. And so I want to share a little bit about my journey to understanding about infant baptism. And so... uh, I guess the first string of events that, that led me here was that I came to Ethos. I probably would have never even picked up the baptism issue again if it hadn't been for you all. Remember the day Bo called me and said, uh, would you be interested in an executive director position at our church? And I said, Bo, you know I'm a Baptist. He says, I know, and I won't hold it against you. So um, I said, yes, because I felt that this is indeed what the Lord wanted for me and was calling to me uh, to do. Bo in the session knew I was a Baptist, and it didn't seem to matter. They trusted me enough not to make it an issue. 
We both saw the issue as an in-house debate. You know what I'm talking about? We're all a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's an in-house conversation. It's not us against them. It's us together seeking the truth. That's what it is. And so they let me come on staff and be executive direction, director. So as I make comments today, please understand that I am, it's an in-house thing. Not pressuring you or anyone else in any way. If you're a member here and you say, you know, I can't understand this infant baptism, that's fine. It's okay. Because we're all in it together. For heaven's sake, it took me 50 years to come to this position. So, I'll give you at least that long. Okay? All right. And, you know, one of the things about our understanding of the Holy Spirit is that He is the one that changes our minds. And so it just takes all the pressure off of us. You know, if the Holy Spirit doesn't lead you to one position or another, that's His business and I'll let Him work with you. I'm not about to step into that position. Okay, so with those comments, let me share with you a little bit of my journey. The first thing that came to my mind on this journey of, to infant baptism is that it requires an understanding of covenant theology. Now that may be a new term for some of you, and that's okay. Very simply, uh, I haven't always embraced covenant theology. I embraced the doctrines of grace long before I came to an understanding of covenant theology. But just a nutshell view of what covenant theology is, is that a covenant is a relationship that God establishes between himself and his people. Fair enough? That's how he deals in relationship with his people. Then... He uses covenants. Covenant theology then is simply recognizing that this is the way God relates to his people. And it's the organizing principle that he uses to lay out his word. So that's how we understand his word is through him giving covenants and his relationship with his people. It informs us in a lot of ways in regards to infant baptism. First of all. Understanding the scriptures through a covenant lens, you see, first of all, that the Bible is a book, one book from beginning to end. It's not two books put in the same binding. The Old Testament and the New Testament, one book. The second thing that we see is that there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New. It's not just well, that was then and this is now. It, it goes from Old Testament to New Testament. And a lot of our different understanding about things really comes from thinking that there's discontinuity versus continuity between the Old and New Testament. We see that we learn a lot about how God relates. Uh, thirdly, we see a lot about how God relates to his church by way of how he related to Old Testament Israel. And so there are a lot of similarities, a lot of continuity there. The Old Covenant or the Old Testament sets the stage in many ways for the New Covenant or the New Testament. 
New Testament standing alone would be really hard to understand. It's already hard to understand, but it'd be more harder to understand if you didn't have the Old Testament. Okay? So, if I believe that until or unless you recognize the continuity of the Old and New Testament, you're really never going to get to the point of understanding infant baptism. Okay? So the first thing that came into place, kind of snapped into place for me as I was considering this issue was covenant theology, a full embracing of that. The second thing that snapped into place for me was a matter of who is in this covenant. Who does God make covenant with? For me, a Baptist, I had always thought that being in covenant with God is the same thing as being saved or redeemed. One and the same. In covenant, saved. So then, if you're born again, then you're in covenant with God. But if you're not born again, I thought, then there is no covenant with God for you. But then I was challenged to consider that God's covenants have always included believers and unbelievers, which was a new thought for me. You see how in, in infant baptism, when, when our children have not come to faith yet, they're still unbelievers. And so you see how this is important to know that if they're a part of the covenant and we're baptizing them, recognizing that they're a part of the covenant, then we need to kind of answer that question. Are there unbelievers and believers? Does God make covenant with both? My answer that I discovered is yes. Let me give you a long protracted reason why. Okay? All right. There are six covenants in the scripture that we find. Six covenants. Okay? Five in the Old Testament and one new covenant. Okay? The five in the Old Covenant are Adam and Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Okay? Let's go through those really quickly. The first five of these covenants, as I said, were in the Old Testament. Number one, Adam and the covenant of works. You see, God created Adam and entered into covenant with him. He was offered the blessing of life if he would just obey the covenant's terms. What was the covenant's terms? Well, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he ate and broke that covenant, then things fell apart. Death entered in, the fall, all these things came to be because Adam broke the covenant of works, the covenant that God had with him. In um, Romans chapter 5 verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. So the sin and the curse covers all men. All men are under this covenant of works. For those of us, and that covenant of works is still in effect, by the way. For those those of us who are redeemed, Jesus kept that covenant for us. In our stead, on our behalf. And so we are guiltless before the covenant 
of Adam or the covenant of works because Jesus did it for us. Those of us who have not come to faith in Christ are still required to keep that covenant of works, which is impossible. But you see, both believers and unbelievers still under that covenant of works. Second, Noah and the Noahic covenant. Like the Adamic covenant, it's a universal covenant, right? After Adam's and Eve's exile from the Garden of Eden, mankind got worse and worse and worse until God said, enough already. I'm going to destroy the, destroy the earth. And so all but Noah and his children and the animals represented, right? After the flood, then he gave, made a covenant with Noah that he would spread the rainbow out as a sign of the covenant that he would no longer destroy the earth. He would never destroy the earth by water ever again, which includes us, right? Believers and unbelievers in that covenant with Noah. Thirdly, Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and, and on. The first of the national covenants. God would have been just if he would have just chose to leave us under Adam's covenant, the covenant of works. But from the time of Adam, God chose to create for himself a people for his own possession. He chose to, to call to himself a people that would be his own. And he started with Abraham. He initiated this covenant with Abraham. He established the covenant of grace all the way back with Adam saying, I will make a covenant of grace with you. This covenant would not be revealed all at one time because they really couldn't handle it. They couldn't have understood. And so this covenant of grace was unfolded throughout the rest of the covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham then, setting in motion a creation of a people that he would call his own. God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation and, and that he would be a blessing to all the families of the world. And we know that nation as the nation of Israel, God's chosen people that began with one man, Abraham. To Abraham, as Blythe read, he gave the sign of circumcision to set apart those who were his people. Although it was a physical sign, it was to represent much, much more than that. It was to symbolize an inward change, what the, both the Old Testament and New Testament talk about, about a circumcision of the heart, where the heart is changed in this new people, where the heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, and we become responsive to God Himself. We find that in all those who were physical descendants of this physical circumcision, they bore this mark. And it would include those who would follow God and honor Him and those who wouldn't. I would remind you that Abraham had two famous sons. He had many more. But he had two favorites, uh, famous sons. The first one was Ishmael. Ishmael received the sign of the covenant, but he wasn't the chosen one. He wasn't the promised one. But Isaac received the same sign, but he was of the promised one, the people of God. 
We also see here, Abraham received the same sign after God declared him righteous. Isaac and the rest received the same sign before God had declared him righteous. One after, one before, which brings a lot of clarity for how we practice baptism in our day. So, believers, unbelievers, under the same covenant. The fourth covenant, Moses, and the Mosaic covenant, Exodus 19 and beyond, is also a national covenant. After slavery in Egypt, and God called His people out of Egypt, out of bondage, He led them in the wilderness, in the desert, and finally he led them to Mount Sinai, where he there gave them what is called the Mosaic Covenant. Much of what we read in the Old Testament is that Mosaic Covenant. To keep this covenant, God required Israel to both believe in him and to value, worship him, and to trust him. And we find that all of Israel were in covenant with God at that time. But not, not all Israel were saved because they didn't value Him. They didn't believe in Him and they didn't trust Him. So again, believers and unbelievers. The fifth covenant, David and the Davidic covenant. You find that in 2 Samuel 7. It's the final national covenant. The Davidic covenant contained the, uh, continued the unfolding of God's revelation of a Messiah to come. And that's what he really focuses on in the Davidic covenant. Here God promised a Messiah, an anointed one that would be one of his sons. We find once more, there were always true believers in the nation of Israel, but there are also many physical descendants of of Abraham and Moses and David that would not believe. So we see in all five of these covenants, found in the Old Testament that it included those who believe and those who wouldn't believe. So would we not expect the same in the New Covenant? If God established this pattern through all five of His Old Covenant covenants, would we not expect it in the New Covenant? And I think we see that. It helps me understand this understanding of covenant helps me understand some of the things in Hebrews that I never understood before. And I preached through it, and probably not very well. But I love Hebrews. But there's some things in there that I come to, and I think, I don't understand. One of those was Hebrews chapter 10. Listen, in Hebrews chapter 10, we're seeing that there are people who can turn away from Christ though they are in special covenant relationship with him. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, that was a lot of words, I know. But it seems to say that You can lose your salvation. If you turn from God, look out, judgment's coming. 
But we see it all throughout the scripture that that's not what it says. It never says that once a Christian is a Christian that he can lose that somehow. So what is he saying? He's not talking about losing your salvation. What he is saying is that you could be a member of the covenant, one who listens to the word and takes it in, part of the community, and still not be a believer. And for you, if you don't believe and still part of the community, judgment awaits. There has to be this inward change of heart. He goes on, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Hmm. Now what is he saying? The people are being warned and the ones that are being warned are the ones who treated the blood of the covenant like an unholy thing. Like it didn't matter. These are the ones who are in danger. It's interesting, he says that they have been sanctified. Now normally, when we think about that word sanctified, we're talking about becoming more holy, becoming more like Christ. But here, that's not what he's talking about. Both sanctified and holy here means set apart. So what he is saying is, is, look, you're part of the church community, you're part of the covenant community, and yet you don't know the Savior. You've heard the word, words of the gospel. You understand them. You've been set apart because you are part of this community, and yet your heart is still cold, your heart is still hard. Judgment awaits. You must believe and trust. So I believe that the new covenant includes, this new covenant relationship with God includes believers and unbelievers. Those who are redeemed and those who are not. Being redeemed and being in the covenant are not synonymous terms. That was a huge issue for me. Can a 50-something-year-old man change his mind? Yes. Because these were deep-rooted understandings. So when we go from there, then we start thinking about our children. How does that affect our children? Well, I think it sets the stage for that discussion of our children and God's covenant. We believe that there are privileges and responsibilities that come with the covenant, not just to adults, but to children as well. Even before they redeemed. Even before they come to Christ. You see, we don't find even one single time in the Old Testament where God makes a covenant with an individual, an adult individual, and he doesn't include their children. Not even once. I'm going to run through them real quick, okay? Adam, we know, in the covenant of works, his covenant included everyone, okay? What about Noah? Noah. Genesis 6.18 
But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Covenant with Noah included his children. Abraham, Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Moses, Exodus 20, where we find the Ten Commandments. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's talking about offspring. He's talking about children. David, in Psalm 132, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my commandment and covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. You see, that was, that was kind of changing for me. To find that every single covenant includes children. God made covenants in the Old Testament with adults and their children. Now, those children still had to come to faith. They still had to trust in Jesus to be redeemed and to be saved. But they had special privileges and responsibilities because they were a part of this covenant community. If God dealt with individuals and children in the previous five covenants in the Old Testament, would it not be reasonable to look and consider I wonder if he treats adults and their children in the new covenant in the same way. Well, we find that it is indeed so. I believe that the children of the new covenant believers, just like those in the old covenant, have special privileges and responsibilities. Acts chapter 2, you'll recognize it. It's the, the message that Peter preached at Pentecost when 3,000 people were saved. Listen to the language and hear the fact that he uses old covenant language in his message. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for you and for your children. Peter uses covenant language. Then we come to the household baptisms in the New Testament. Several places in the New Testament it speaks of the individual adult believing and their whole household being baptized. Let me read a couple to you. Acts chapter 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, 
She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Lydia and her household. What about the Philippian jailer? Acts 16, and they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household. Now listen real close. That he had believed. Isn't that interesting? Didn't say that all the household believed, and they might have. But he writes that the jailer believed, and his household was baptized. One more, 1 Corinthians 1, 16, uh, Nahoma Stephanus. Paul is trying to remember back who he'd baptized, and he said, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. I relate with Paul in this way. I can't remember, right? But he did say, I baptized this whole household. Now, does the fact that households were baptized prove infant baptism was practiced? No. Some people try to prove it here. I don't. It's in a house debate again. They may all have come to faith or they may not have. But my point is not that. My point is that God dealt with with households, not only individuals, does it not suggest that the pattern then of the Old Covenant was not abolished in the New, that the Old Testament and New Testament are not completely separate books, but one book together? One more example. I think I told you the last one would be my last example, but I'm, one more example. First Corinthians 7. You know, there are a lot of things in the Scripture that I read and I go past and I think, I have no idea what he's talking about. But I'm okay with that because I know that I'll come back through again. And I just trust that someday he'll let me know. 1 Corinthians 7 is one of those. To put it in context, Paul, a single man, is writing to married couples, which kind of is a unique situation anyway. If he was an apostle, I might not have listened to him, right? But he writes to them and he says, okay, here's the situation. If, if a believing person comes to faith in Christ and his or her spouse does not, if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you got to let them and you're not held to that marriage bond. But if they consent to live with you, then you don't have to divorce them. You just stay together, Okay. Listen to what he says then. That part I understood. That's clear. Okay? But listen to what he said now. He says, verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, They are holy. I've struggled with that all my life. Until I started thinking about what it means. Again, holy means set apart here. 
I think he is saying that the other members of the family are set apart, a part of the covenant, if you will, because of the great blessing of having one of the adults being a believer. That they enter into this covenant of God, the privileges and responsibilities, and their blessing is great. They're set apart. Children, by means of the belief of their parents, are in covenant with God, set apart and holy. Now, again, they must one day own the faith themselves. Please don't hear me saying, oh, we're all good because we're baptized or in the covenant. I'm not saying that. I'm saying children must come to faith just like everyone else does. But there is a privileged position of being a part of the believing family. So let's draw it home. We'll bring our children back and we'll have this, our service of baptism. But let me just, just close it out. I pondered many other things because that's what preachers do, right? But fully embracing covenant theology and the fact that believers and unbelievers can be in covenant with God were the big picture ideas that opened up my mind so that I fully affirm baptizing our children even before they come to faith. But let me just say one last thing. Understand that we baptize our children not, not to bring them into the covenant with God. It's not what we're doing. We are recognizing that they are already in covenant of God with God because they have believing parents. Baptism, baptism does not create the covenant relationship. It recognizes it. It reminds us that it's special. Their being born to Christian parents does not grant them eternal life. It does not guarantee eternal life. But by virtue of being our children, they are in covenant with God and in a great position to believe. We can expect them to believe and have faith one day as followers of Jesus. So our children are greatly blessed whether we're Baptist or Presbyterian. Okay? They are blessed. Baptists are not harming their babies if they don't baptize them. Baptist babies are in covenant with God by virtue of their believing parents. The covenant exists, whether recognized or not. They are holy and set apart to God by virtue of their believing parents. Because you see these children, because they are with us and a part of our body, they hear the word of God taught and preached. They receive prayer. They know that we pray for them. They grow up in a community of believers where all of us are responsible to point them to Jesus. And they're under the care of loving, caring shepherds. What a great blessing for our children. But there is benefit in understanding that they are indeed in covenant with God. 
sharing the privileges and the responsibilities to live in light of that covenant. Let's pray.